You are listening to No Olympia on NetNet Radio. This program is hosted by No Olympics LA, a coalition of human rights organizations fighting against the 2028 Los Angeles Olympic bid and the evils of the Olympic Games. You can find us on social media at No Olympics LA and check out our website at NoLympicsLA.com to learn more. We recorded a podcast series called Rings of Hell in 2018 with our friends over at Knock.LA, dedicated to demystifying the Olympic grift. Today, we'll be playing an abridged version of Episode 3, The Movement Against the IOC, in which No Olympics LA members Anne and Carrie Ann speak with organizers about the transnational anti-Olympic movement in Rio in the lead-up to the 2016 Olympic Games and the successful resistance to Boston's aborted 2024 Olympic bid. To learn more about the anti-Olympic movements in this episode, check out www.nobostonolympics.org and www.rioonwatch.org. Once we make our way back through these Rings of Hell episodes, we'll go on weekly journeys to various Olympic host cities and countries to explore the real cultural impacts of the Games with interviews, music, art, and much more. So stay tuned. Games uh, by uh, uniting uh, the athletes uh, from 206 uh, National Olympic Committees plus the IOC Refugee Olympic Team uh, are uh, maybe one of the most powerful demonstrations against uh, against uh, discrimination uh, uh, there uh, in, in this uh, uh, world. And uh, furthermore, you know, uh, uh, in uh, uh, the uh, Olympic world. Uh, uh, we are going uh, even uh, uh, beyond uh, non-discrimination uh, uh, because uh, uh, for us uh, it's it's about uh, uh, not only not discriminating. This is Rings of Hell, a Olympics LA and Knock LA production, examining the history impact and possible future of the Olympic Games in Los Angeles. Right now we're almost just a little over exactly two years since the since the Olympics took place in Rio. Um, and what we can see, I was just in Rio as recently as a couple months ago, and it's a city that's still really struggling with the consequences of not just the actual games, but the more than seven year process of building up to and preparing for them. Episode three, the movement against the IOC. Transnational Solidarity Against the Games. Hello, welcome to episode three of Rings of Hell. Uh, This episode is titled The Movement Against the IOC. Today we will be focusing on the transnational movement against the Olympics and the IOC, um, speaking to some organizers from movements in Rio and Boston. I'm Anne, I'm the co-chair of the No Olympics LA uh, Coalition Campaign and Working Group, uh, and I have here with me Robin and Carrie Ann, uh, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourselves. Sure. Hey all, I'm Carrie Ann. I'm, uh, I've been living in Rio for several years leading up to and just after the Olympics. I worked for the NGO Catalytic Communities as the editor of the Rio and Watch news site, which is 
a site that really emerged ahead of the Olympics focused on favela perspectives on the city. Uh, Robin, do you mind introducing yourself and your role in uh, Boston's No Olympics uh, movement? Yeah, sure. So my name is Robin Jacks. Uh, I, with a bunch of activists in Boston, started a group called No Boston 2024, which is part of a larger movement to stop the Olympics bid here for 2024. Um, We started in November of 2014, and the bid was successfully defeated in July of the following year. Awesome. Um, And I'll add here that uh, both of these uh, campaigns were inspirations for for our work and a big kind of impetus around forming the Olympics LA. We can get a little bit more of uh, into that later, but um, I just sort of want to ground that. Um, So to introduce the full conversation that we're having, I just want to give a quick overview of various um, resistance movements in the campaigns that have been happening around the world against the Olympics. Uh, So first, there are some cities that have successfully overturned their bids and defeated their bids, including Rome, Hamburg, Budapest, New York, Shun, Oslo, uh, and Boston, as Robin mentioned. Um, And so those were huge inspirations. Uh, Also, a number of cities that are actively continue to have resistance movements and campaigns, including Tokyo, Paris, and Pyeongchang, in spite of not overturning the bid um, and being either having already hosted the games or, you know, being slated to host the games in upcoming years. Uh, There are also some burgeoning resistance movements and campaigns in Calgary, uh, a number of cities in Italy. There's a trio of cities, Cortina, Milan, and Turin, that are, you know, bidding kind of concurrently, uh, as well as Denver. And so, you know, we've been talking to all these campaigns, we've drawn inspiration from all these campaigns and movements. Uh, And some of the, you know, key takeaways that I just want to ground this conversation in is, as we've seen the Olympics wreak havoc and destruction um, internationally, kind of in a variety of cities around the world, uh, we've also seen some incredible transnational solidarity spring out of that. So that's been one of the most um, gratifying and inspiring aspects of this work to me personally has been the opportunity to connect with so many different organizers around the world um, and and build solidarity and learn about what's happening in other cities and see how all of our various uh, struggles are connected. Um, One of the things that's been really interesting to see as of late is how many of these campaigns have come out of housing justice groups and housing justice activism. Um, So both including homelessness advocacy and anti-gentrification work. Uh, so that's been a really incredible opportunity to connect, not just around the Olympics, but seeing you know what's happening in other cities in terms of radical tenants organizing and um, anti-gentrification work. Um, and also just to see how many cities and how many cities have continued the resistance after defeating the bid or after not defeating the bid, just seeing that the work that's going on does not live and die with the bid or what happens with the IOC. So um, yeah, it has been really galvanizing and inspiring to see what's happening, to connect with people. And so I'm really thrilled to have this opportunity for the three of us to talk. Um, so first, I just wanted to start off um, Carrie-Anne, do you mind just kind of giving us an overview of what happened with the 2016 Olympics in Rio and then what's happening now? Sure, yeah. Well, right now we're almost just a little over exactly two years since the, since the Olympics took place in Rio. Um, and what we can see, I was just in Rio as recently as a couple months ago, and it's a city that's still really struggling with the consequences of not just the actual games, but the more than seven year process of building up to and preparing for them. 
which was really that period in which the you know the the city led by Mayor Eduardo Pais and his um, sort of allies in various industries like construction, real estate development, as well as the IOC and the Brazilian Organizing Committee were kind of establishing a, a certain vision that they wanted to see of the city of Rio going forward. Um, and really what, that hap- what happened as a result of the Olympic focus on the timeline politically was that that was seven years of, of time in, in Rio's experience that really the, you know, the whole political urban planning process was pretty much hijacked by the, by the approach of these games. Um, and unfortunately, there's a really, really long list of, you know, of, of evidence to that fact. But um, just to highlight a couple that I think are, are particularly important to understand first and foremost, um, right now, Brazil is still in a national level economic crisis. Um, there's cuts to social spending, but Rio is in a particularly unique case because of its extreme levels of debt due to the Olympics. Um, not just the, the, that the money was spent, but that a lot of it actually is ended up being public expenditures. So that's going to be on taxpayers' um, bills in the future and, and currently. There's, um, there's also large numbers of sports facilities that were built with various legacy plans, but unfortunately right now they're underutilized or not used at all, some falling into to, um, sort of disrepair. And, um, and, you know, at the same time, the state of Rio has been actually struggling kind of alongside those debts to, to even pay public servants, so that's nurses, teachers, doctors. So you have the kind of contrast between the massive amount of money that Rio was willing to spend on these games versus the, the shortages that it then experienced in its uh, public sectors. There's also the current issue that really um, has just gotten worse, I would say, since the Olympics of the, the situation of security in the city. So that was, security was one of the main issues that the, the bid um, laid out. You know, this is, an Olympics is a chance to totally reform and improve the situation of security in the city. Two years after the Olympics, we can see that not only did that not really ever happen, but it's actually in a, a worse, more complicated situation today. Um, there's a federal, unprecedented federal military intervention in the state of Rio. Um, and then we also just have to talk about the fact that through that, through those seven years buildup, 77,000 people um, were evicted. That's based on the city's own data. And um, that's between the years of 2009, when Rio won the right to host the Olympics, and 2016, or actually 2015, sorry, that's not even complete data. Um, so what people are dealing with now, those who were removed are, are really dealing with the psychological impacts of that experience, especially because in many cases, um, the process was, was, was quite brutal, compensation wasn't always fair. Um, and more broadly speaking, the city is dealing with what it means that that many people, that many that high number of families from predominantly poor communities in more central areas have been pushed out to further out regions of the city. So, you know, really kind of reshaping the land, the urban landscape, and um, people are dealing with the repercussions of what that means for the city going forward. Thank you. That was, uh, yeah, that was, um, it's always brutal to hear about what is happening and has happened in Rio as a consequence of the Olympics, but um, necessary to talk about. Um, Robin, do you mind just giving us a quick overview of the No Boston campaign and kind of, uh, you know, how I, I'll get into some more specific questions later on, but I'd love to hear just a little bit of, um, you know, like who was involved and, you know, the the I know you gave a brief timeline, but maybe a little bit more detail on um, 
you know, how the bid was framed and came about in Boston and then what defeating it has meant um, to all of you. I know you you wrote some stuff on Twitter recently that was incredibly um, poignant about, you know, seeing what could have happened with the games and and how it feels to know that you you evaded them successfully. So in Boston, I mean, I guess it's pretty much like it was in L.A., I'm sure, with you guys, is that no one knew this was coming. You know, there was not really a big public fanfare about there having been any kind of a bid. It just kind of fell into our laps, sort of. Um, A community newspaper in my old neighborhood of Jamaica Plain somehow got access to documents showing that not only was there an Olympics bid that we didn't know about, but we were one of four finalists along with LA, San Francisco, and DC, which we didn't know, and that they were going to build two structures for events in a public park, a really historic, important to the community public park in our neighborhood. And Boston is the kind of city where that kind of stuff doesn't really fly. You know, it's really hard for development to take place here. There's a lot that you have to go through to make that happen. Uh, People are very like, if you want to build something in this neighborhood, you've got to go through a whole process. So to have something like the Olympics fall out of the sky into our laps like that, there was a pretty quick like public outcry against it. So some activists and I decided to hold a public meeting in that neighborhood, Jamaica Plain, and about 75 people showed up on the first night. There was already a group that had formed a year and a half or so before that and had started working. They came to the meeting. We all talked together. You know, at that point, kind of like a movement coalesced around fighting the Olympics. A series of wild, wacky events happened over the next few months. Uh, It was a huge local news story. Everyone had an opinion on the Olympics. People's opinions shifted a lot. And every month there would be public opinion polls showing that we were getting more and more popular. Eventually, a pretty solid majority of people in not just Boston, but the whole area opposed the Olympics coming. And at that point, you know, all these other minor details kind of started to come up and we realized that we were winning, which doesn't usually happen when you're a leftist taking on any kind of political campaign. But eventually they did pull the bid in, I can't even remember if it was July or August of 2015, but the bid was pulled. And then that's how, unfortunately, you guys in LA ended up with it. So I apologize for that. I'm so sorry that like what we did uh, ended up being something that unfortunately fell on you guys well i mean you were you no apologies necessary because you were really (laughs) uh you and jonathan were some of the you know our main cheerleaders and also inspiration for starting this campaign one of the things i wanted to note um and sort of touch on briefly is uh your opposition the bid committee and olympic boosters uh referred to you all as 10 people on twitter and really didn't take your resistance campaign seriously and so for us seeing that you were successful, you know, that you were a truly grassroots movement, um, that you successfully knocked the IOC out of <laughs> out of Boston and took down this kind of monolith of various like political and real estate interests um, was really inspiring and kind of, you know, made us feel like we could make a dent in our own situation. Um, so one question I just have is what do you what do you think it is that uh, 
that this opposition missed about you? What do you think it is that made them not take you seriously and really overlook the power of, of what you all were doing? I think there were a lot of factors that kind of made that one big perfect storm for us. Um, I think for one thing, they very much underestimated activists' ability to use social media as a tool um, and to use social media as a method of building a movement and not just announcing things or using it for PR. I think they greatly underestimated that. I think they underestimated how smart people are and how inquisitive people are, especially in a city like Boston. It's a very highly educated city, a lot of local pride, and I think they underestimated that. And I, they also, I mean, I think one thing I think about the L.A. bit is that they watched very closely what happened here. There were rumors um, that we heard kind of towards the end of the bid that the USOC was very fractured all along, that it had been kind of a 50-50 split when they were deciding on the bid city. Half of them wanted it to go to LA, half of them wanted it to go to Boston. So the LA people we had heard were always kind of watching to see, not necessarily rooting for the Boston bid to fall apart because that doesn't look good for them, but watching to see what would happen. And I think because of that, they were paying extra attention and seeing all the huge gaffes that the Boston 2024 team made. One, for example, a lot of this happened during the biggest snowstorm period, the worst winter Boston's ever had. So during this time, our public transit system, the trains really started to fall apart. Uh, people were missing work for days at a time, which in a city like Boston is just people are not okay with that. Um, and during that time, we were using this to say, hey, don't you want them to spend the money to fix the transit system? Don't you want money to go to that instead of the Olympics? And then they tweeted, we're having a day today. Why don't you watch the Olympics movie by Lenny Riefenstahl? You know, so it was just things like that. Like we would see that and seize on it and be like, how dare you? What is wrong with you? That's how they use social media and how, how we use social media, how they used it was stuff like that. So I think they really underestimated that. I think they thought that people were just going to be like, cool, I like sports. I like Olympics and didn't think so much about people also like getting to work on time. They like being able to know that their kids are in good schools. Right. They like being able to afford living in their neighborhoods and not fearing eviction um, at every waking exactly. moment. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, great. I think, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, their home's stolen from them. Right. Um, yes, another, yeah, good thing to, to put on the laundry list. Um, yeah, I would love to hear more from both of you about sort of what what each resistance movement looked like and what opposition to, to the bid and to the Olympics games looked like in each city, kind of encompassing um, who were some of the organizations and groups that got involved, who were some of the key targets um, and then what were some of your most successful strategies and tactics? And we can kind of just like jump in wherever. Yeah, well, actually, I'd, I'd love to jump tie that to what Robin was saying in terms of the kind of element of surprise that seemed to strike some of the Olympics organizers, obviously in a different in a different situation, um, because the bid had already been awarded to Rio and, um, you know, things were well underway in terms of development. But in 2013, in uh, the, well, the Northern Hemisphere summer, but June, July in Brazil in the winter, um, a, a wave of protests swept across multiple Brazilian cities. And it was very much, it, the, mo the more um, urgent spark was actually about uh, 
transportation and bus fares. But the protests became very much tied into FIFA and demanding, um, you know, demanding high quality education, high quality health instead of expenditures on FIFA's kind of extravagant demands for, for stadiums. And it was definitely an incident that really took uh, a lot of very powerful people behind the Olympics by total surprise. And, you know, in terms of both the, the national level government, the, the city level, and um, for sure the IOC and Olympic organizers. And I think what's interesting, another connection is that, it, you know, it really emerged out of social media as well. So in terms of how people called people to the streets and, and those extra conversations that were taking place on platforms like Facebook, platforms like Twitter. Um, and I do think there's an element of the IOC and other government organizers of the Olympics just hadn't and maybe still haven't figured out how to deal with that. They have, they're not used to the idea that these conversations can can spark um, usually out of existing networks. They're never really out of nowhere. Um, but, you know, things can really take off and they don't really know how to prepare themselves for those incidents. She's absolutely right about the existing networks. I mean, when we started, we didn't even really have to look at previous Olympics groups. I mean, they kind of found us. Um, Dave Zirin, the journalist, definitely like pointed us towards the Rio on Watch folks like you guys. Um, there were a lot of people that found us from the London Olympics and they were like, hey, we've been you know, looking to see who would be the opposition groups for 2024, gave us tons of advice. Um, a group from Chicago that had fought their bid gave us a ton of help. People even all the way back from the Vancouver Olympics, which was, I think, 2000, those people were even you know, hopping in to give us advice and you know, explain what we were up against which that kind of thing, I know all these cities are very different. The culture is different. The environment is different. The challenges are different, but the IOC does not change. The IOC, I don't think people really understand. They think, oh, it must be like, you know, Michael Jordan, Mary Lou Retton, people like that, but it's not. It's kings and queens and- Or even like the UN. And and all these types of people. So I think to kind of have that understanding of you're literally going up against the most powerful people in the world. LA now has is one of the cities for the World Cup leading into the Olympics. Right, right. Yeah. I think Rio in some ways is almost a test run for that because mm-hmm. Russia has also just technically done it, right, with the Sochi Olympics yeah. and the, the, the very recent World Cup. Um, previously, it wasn't so common for any, any city and, and country to take that on because it's such a big demand on your, your resources and time of, of people yeah. organizing these things. And LA is really just going for everything too. And, you know, LA was uh, bidding, at, you know, for the Amazon headquarters. So yeah, Super Bowl. it's basically, it's, it's really a package deal. Um, and when, Robin, is that something that you saw? And I guess this kind of leads into another question I had, which is, I think, um, LA and Rio and Boston, another thing we all have in common is um, kind of like high profile opportunistic mayors. Um, who are at the center of a lot of these bids. And so I think that's, you know, it's kind of like the same figure bidding for all these packaged things at once. And so I would love to hear from both of you um, how what that looked like in in Boston and Rio with uh, Marty Walsh and what Eduardo Pai is. Yeah, um, in Boston, that is definitely the case. We kind of at first focused on the idea of the like dead Olympic venue, the abandoned, the white elephant, the abandoned venue that, falls apart, crumbles, all this public money is put into it and they do nothing with it. But it became clearer towards the end of our fight that that was not what they were looking for. 
they were trying to take land that belonged to private entities, some even public entities like the parks and such, um, and transform that into into something that would create further profit after the games were over. So for example, there is a tow yard and a group of warehouses in a part of Boston that's called Wydet Circle. Uh, that area of Boston is very much in a geographical hotspot, but it's kind of hard to get to, so it hasn't been gentrified out of existence yet. But I mean, their plan was literally just to take that from these people, pay them probably far less than they could sell it for on their own, and then create a brand new part of town called Midtown, which I know that happens a lot in other cities, but Boston, there has been no new part of town in that area in hundreds of years. Like that's just a totally, completely bizarre idea, right? Just this idea that you're going to drop a new neighborhood in between like Southie and, you know, the North End, these historic American historic neighborhoods. So people really balked at that, but then that was kind of this, oh yeah, like this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to bypass all of the other stuff and just grab this this land and then once the Olympics is over, they can do whatever they want with it. Yeah, I mean the the interests of real estate and construction was just such a clear in your face issue in Rio through that whole process and it's really important uh, just the, the perfect connection to Rio's mayor at the time, Eduardo Paez, was that a lot of his campaign donors were coming from those industries. So in particular, um, in the region that hosted the Olympic Park called Baja, um, there was a uh, one developer, Carlos Carvalho, and he was a major donor to Eduardo Pais. And he actually, you know, I, I don't think he, he saw any problem with this because he, he went on the record both with BBC Brazil, I think it was, and The Guardian, saying that he basically, his plan for the area was to develop an, an elite area, a noble area, and that basically poor people didn't have any part in that. So he was making these public statements at the same time as, as a lot of evictions were taking place in that area. And Eduardo Paez, on the other hand, you know, he is has always been a very media-savvy guy. So he immediately, um, you know, kind of denounced what his, his donor had said um, and, you know, said, that's not, we're here to transform the place for the poor. But actually, what most of us found was that Carvalho's statement was refreshing in the sense that it was okay this is actually this is actually what's going on here mm -hmm. and maybe he made a kind of error in terms of media PR strategy but what he said is really reflecting the approach and you have Eduardo Paez who who's really image conscious and who's going out of his way to say one thing that is going to look good to a kind of wide-ranging different audience um, at the same time as, as something very different is happening under his administration I mean the perfect kind of contrast I think is um, he he had gave quite a popular TED talk in maybe around 2012, talking about how favelas, which really are just working class neighborhoods um, that provide affordable housing, rather they're built by residents who need affordable housing. Um, his TED talk was very focused on the fact that favelas need to be integrated into the city, and to do that, you invest in them, you develop them. It's not about evictions; it's about um, really participatory politics. And at the same time as you know, he was giving those talks, he was running, his administration was basically running a policy of, of evictions tied to the Olympics or the Olympic uh, kind of project. And um, the, the contrast was, was very blatant for anyone who was willing to look for it. But at the same time, he was, he was very good with the media. So not everyone really saw that. 
Yeah, and as um, folks who have been following this podcast series will know, um, and particularly from our episode on Mayor Garcetti and our episode on uh, immigration justice, we're dealing with the exact same thing here. We have a mayor who is incredibly media savvy, who knows exactly the right words to say, Mm -hmm. but then if you bother to stick around and look at what he's doing, (laughs) it's the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, our mayor, Marty Walsh, came from the building trades, and the guy who is the one who brought the Olympics to Boston is a guy named John Fish, who is a construction mogul here. So, I mean, that's very transparent as far as when you think about why would they want to do this? Why why would two guys that have nothing to do with sports mega events suddenly want to have one? Because it benefits them. <laughs> Right. And this theme is something that always, you know, I think it just answers that question when when people ask, oh, but wasn't that just Rio? It's in Brazil. It's in a so-called developing country. And won't it be different in Boston or L.A.? But when you look at the kind of driving factors behind it of why exactly um, what Robin just said, why people actually want to host these things and what are their interests tied up in it, you start to find these very, very similar themes that really aren't that different from place to place. Right. That gets into the the next point that I wanted to cover in terms of the role that media played in covering both bids and resistance movements. That's something that um, has always driven me crazy even before the beginning of our campaign in L.A. was seeing how things were covered in Rio. Um, and then since the start of, of, uh, of our work here, just this kind of refrain of, you know, well, L.A. isn't Rio. Um, and there's always kind of a, a racist dog whistle element of that, of like, oh, you know, <laughs> South American people, like they were just messy. They just like couldn't balance the the budget and they couldn't get the columns to add up. They were too busy partying or whatever. They like accidentally built this stadium on top of people's homes as if that wasn't the design to begin with. We even saw in some of the um, documentaries that we've screened here with the, the filmmakers from Rio and from the favelas, there's one man who's pointing out he had been evicted from his home and his home had been demolished because they said they were building next to it and he pointed out that they weren't even building next to it so so yeah so um you know just yeah I would love to hear more from your perspectives and especially as it relates to getting information out and getting accurate information out what what did that look like um in terms of of dealing with media I do think I think the international media had a really interesting role in Rio. So absolutely, as you just said, there was on the one hand this this um, I, definitely an area that I would criticize them for in terms of playing into very tired, honestly, um, questions and storylines about the Olympics that do tend to rear their heads a little bit more in in uh, in, in Brazil than let's say for um, for the one in the UK and London. But um, there were a lot of questions like, will Rio be ready? Um, will the stadiums be finished on time? And that narrative really dominated the, the overall coverage in, in 2016, the months right beforehand. And the problem with that question, you know, if you ask the average Brazilian on the street, they would know, of course, it's going to be ready in time. You know, it's kind of almost a, a local joke, and that's just the culture to run a little bit late. Um, but more importantly, the problems with those questions is that you then, if that's what you're asking right before the Olympics, will it be ready on time? You set this bizarrely low bar for success, which after the Olympics, then the story is, oh, wow, yeah, it was ready on time. They literally hosted these games inside a structure and like nothing actually collapsed. Um, Whereas, you know, that's an entirely different set of questions from what people were talking about in the whole bid, which was the idea of transformative urban policies and, um, you know, decreasing inequality and and talking about long term 
the, the long-term future of the city, those questions really fade into the background when the focus is so much on these kind of um, much more, I guess, slightly clickbaity questions that, that drive headlines. The same thing happened. I mean, Zika obviously was a very real issue in the year of the Olympics. Um, and, I, you know, it's not one that either the Olympic organizers would want it, wanted to have to focus on either. But it became such a dominant story that questions of evictions, questions of, you know, who's profiting, who's, who's losing, just really, they were there, but they were overshadowed by those things. Right. I will just say, though, the international media had some positive role. I don't want to completely sure. criticize them. Um, one thing that I think was great was it offered a new kind of energy and interest in, in certain local issues that, honestly, the Brazilian national media, for the most part, being... Um, quite consolidated and controlled, just wasn't looking into. So I know a lot of um, favela activists we worked with felt like the international media was much more interested in evictions, more interested in topics of police violence, and really offering a kind of new sense of validation because these journalists were coming from abroad, coming from abroad and um, asking, okay, yeah, what, tell, tell me about your house and tell me about the story of the police killing your son. And those were questions that they'd felt previously had been kind of under, you know, just ignored by national media. So there was, in that sense, kind of an opportunity for, for pushing those stories, but that's certainly not the kind of legacy that the Olympic organizers would have envisioned. Mm-hmm. Um, Robin, from your standpoint, I know you'd mentioned earlier, and I just want to touch on it because this was one of the things that um, struck me when we first began talking, uh, the role of, of polling. Um, and and coverage mm-hmm. uh, and how the media in Boston kind of both you know conducted community outreach and also informed people. Yeah, I would I would say that the media in Boston, I mean, they were all over it. I would say they didn't necessarily cover the issues that we fought the Olympics for. They would talk more about things like budget overruns and that sort of thing rather than like social justice issues. I mean, to be honest, we just wanted to win. We were okay with that because we thought we could win um, and we would focus on whatever. And those things were very important because obviously, you know, if there are these huge budget overruns, like in every other Olympics, then social justice issues are going to be that much more challenging in the city of Boston. So that was not something that we necessarily abandoned, but there'd be lots of times where the media would pick up on things every time Boston 2024 made some ridiculous gaffe on social media, they were all over it. Uh, we did FOIA requests for some bid documents and got those from the state university system and it was all over it. I mean, there were plenty of times where we would talk to people who were using us as a source and give them a story and they would actually follow through on it and do the work. So that was pretty exciting. We also had public meetings every month um, where Boston 2024, this was sponsored by the city. And this is sort of a derail, but not exactly. So Boston 2024 and the city of Boston are supposedly two totally separate entities. Now there was a lot of back and forth hiring between the two, a lot of personal relationships between people who worked for the two. So, you know, obviously that's questionable. But anyway, the point is the city of Boston would host these meetings in different neighborhoods in Boston and uh, they'd have people from Boston 2024 up there and people from the city. No one from the opposition, but it was answer questions supposedly. The meetings became more and more heated as time went on. 
But the media was there covering every single meeting. They would actually get good sound bites, the things that members of these communities were saying. The first one made national news headlines, a picture of everyone in the audience holding up these signs of opposition. I still see that in newspapers today. So, you know, I think the media definitely did a great job of covering it. But again, why is the media choosing to cover Boston in a more serious, positive light than they are for Rio? I would hope that would be pretty obvious. We are a, you know, quote unquote, first world American city. So obviously they're going to naturally be more sympathetic to us than they are to people in Rio, which is completely unfair and sucks. The Olympics would have, are surely more devastating to Rio than they would have been to us as awful as they would have been. So, you know, I think there's definitely a, a complex way to view the media's involvement in covering these things. You know, they were very sympathetic to us. Yeah, that's something that that struck us right away is a big difference. Um, we've had some positive traction with certain media outlets and journalists in L.A., um, which have have made a big difference in terms of like disseminating accurate information. Um, but there have been certain a lot of aspects where it's been really frustrating and like polling has been one of those. We know, uh, you know, WBUR, the, the, you know, NPR affiliate in Boston. Yes. I, sorry, I forgot to explain the polling. But yeah, go ahead. No, that's I think that's been a huge thing because I remember that was a big piece of advice that we got from from you all in Boston and that we got from New York and I believe from Chicago as well was to basically people said leverage the polling that local media is doing. Mm-hmm. And we were like, what polling that local media is doing? <laughs> um, our local media, for the most part, just completely um like took the word of the one poll that the bid committee had conducted and and paid for in 2016 that they had paid LMU to do. And we're just using that as kind of the gospel and we're not conducting any of their own polling. Um, WBUR actually is the only media outlet that has offered or expressed interest in conducting a poll in LA. For you guys, our media wants to do a poll. Someone tweeted at us and we're just like, we like, because we were tweeting about the lack of polls in LA and they were just like, we should talk. (laughs) And it was very interesting because we were like, we would love to talk to anyone who would like to conduct a poll. Like it's, it's disappointing that um, outlets in LA aren't, but also outlets in LA are completely embattled. Like just to talk really briefly to what's happening here. um, A lot of outlets have been I mean, I, this is happening across the country in terms of as journalists are um, are starting to organize and unionize a lot of these, you know, big mm-hmm. moneyed conglomerates, many of whom either overlap or are identical to the real estate lobby. Um, and yeah, and don't want to see their interests being called out, uh, are, are shutting down newsrooms, are firing, you know, journalists, and, and it's increasingly becoming difficult for independent adversarial journalism to survive in LA. Um, the LA Times is, I, I think, the only outlet that has kind of successfully overcome the um, specter of trunk. Um, and uh, the the LA Weekly, we had a huge hit last year when the LA Weekly, which was um, LA's kind of independent alternative weekly, which was, you know, uh, you know, the most viable venue to express dissent in. Um, was purchased by a bunch of right-wing, most like Trump-supporting, mostly real estate-moneyed 
people in Orange County have taken that over now. So that is uh, no longer independent or alternative. Um, they've done a whole bunch of, of horrible things that I could probably spend the next 20 minutes talking about. But yeah, really sort of in L.A., our only local outlet that um, that we have any opportunities ever to work with are the L.A. Times. And, you know, they cover other other things as well. Like it, it is kind of ridiculous. And in a city as big as L.A., that's really sort of our only occasionally viable, depending on the journalist, depending on the story, depending on what else is going on, um, opportunity to get get the word out. Well, one thing I wonder is that, so with Boston, obviously, we've never had an Olympics. No one had any idea what to expect. People were just stunned by the idea that an Olympics could be built in a city like Boston. It just didn't make sense. But you guys have hosted two previous Olympics, the only financially successful Olympics. And I think people's, I wonder if people's perspective stops there and they don't understand the financial guarantee that LA got in 1984, which is the only reason that it was a profitable games for the city. And so I wonder if that kind of colors the whole dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. No, we think it does as well. And that's one of the things that we've been trying to be sort of watchdogs with on our local media is that we think it's their job to inform people of certain things, right? And to that mm -hmm. certain things demand to be mentioned at every turn, that if they are going to describe the LA 84 games as um, like the only profitable Olympic games. They also need to specify what were the conditions that made it profitable. They need to mention that there was a like a citywide referendum and vote on um, on blocking the taxpayer guarantee. They need to talk about, uh, you know, the fact that none of that money went to the city. Uh, we also think that anytime they mention Casey Wasserman, who is the chair of the bid committee, now organizing committee, that he is someone who has multiple financial stakes in the games. We, we think that any journalist in L.A., um, you know, who's writing about the Olympic Games and writing about Casey Wasserman and quoting him, making uh, making a claim about how great the games are going to be, should mention the, the various companies that he owns and runs and has a stake in. Um, we actually we had some success recently recently. Um, where Johnny, uh, my co-chair uh, and the, the founder of No Olympics, uh, who's a, a journalist, uh, basically pushed back on Curbed LA, um, which is a, another local outlet that has reported often very favorably on the Olympics, that has a large, uh, they're you know, primarily focused on like housing and real estate. Um, and so, and Casey Wasserman is one of the, he's on the board of Vox, which owns Curbed. So he essentially oversees this. So, so Johnny had pushed back and said, you need to be disclosing this. And so now every time they write about the Olympics, they have a little disclaimer at the bottom that says Casey Wasserman, who is the chair of the bid, you know, it's a little bit like tail between the legs. It's not quite as, um, we, we think they should like journal it. They should still be allowed to publish that in the content of the article and not just as kind of like a footnote disclaimer, but, um, step in the right direction yeah it's something it's you know i think they they've been caught embarrassed a, a number of times just, just reflecting on everything you guys have been saying i think just navigating the media um was a huge part of of activism for for various groups in rio ahead of the games and um at least are on our end through real watch but also the popular committee through um their dossiers of, of human rights violations that they compiled over the year and also just various social media platforms for both of us we were 
there, there was a reason for the importance of producing our own media, which was really that, in general, the mainstream media was kind of failing on certain issues, at least in, in our view. Um, but at the same time as we were doing that, we were very much open to, to interviews with journalists, and I think um, especially others more than myself just gave almost endless litanies of interviews to, to different uh, national and international media as they arrived. Um, and and not just doing those interviews, but really pushing back and, and critiquing on, on you know critiquing mm -hmm. how they were talking about the issues. So we had um, we had a series called Best and Worst Reporting, and it started out um, as as focused on how the media talked about favelas because they're historically st stigmatized, mm -hmm. um, which we believe feeds directly into very dangerous kind of heavy-handed policies like eviction or um, police occupations. But within those same series, we started, as the Olympics approached, we started talking about best and worst reporting on the Olympics themselves as well and just calling people out for, um, you, know, you know, just exactly what you were describing, kind of putting sentences out there without that extra level mm -hmm. of necessary, like, hey, but also mm -hmm. these people have ties to this real estate industry or such and such. And I, I, think, um, I think we actually had fair, fair amounts of success in terms of, not being afraid to use social media um, emails, mm -hmm. also private emails and conversations to really reach out to journalists directly. And I mean, we, right before the Olympics, you know, a little late in the process, but we, we had a, um, a basically an alternative tour because we saw that the, um, the IOC, not sorry, the IOC, the Brazilian Organizing Committee and the city were, were providing these very structured tailored tours for um, for arriving journalists to say, hey, look at our beautiful Olympic city. So we, and I believe some others did it as well, we're like, okay, well, we'll take you on a tour as well. We're going to take you to Vila Otajimo, the favela that was mostly evicted from the edge of the Olympic Park. We're going to take you to other favelas that were promised massive investments that they never received. And um, we'll take you to favelas that are, are struggling with um, police occupations as, as part of the so-called pacification policy that was meant to ensure security but really ended up just militarizing certain favelas um, and areas of the city so it was kind of you know a, a constant balance between how do we we want to produce our own autonomous stuff but we also need to we need to navigate with the mainstream journalists they're reaching more people mm -hmm. um, and how do we make sure that they have as much information like ready at their at their fingertips to incorporate into their work yeah I'll say a kind of to wrap up this section oh Robin go ahead Oh, no, that's okay. I was just going to say um, that I think, you know, those questions are the questions that we should definitely all be asking. And then the challenge is you've got the journalists who are asking themselves these really hard questions and trying to figure out what type of coverage is the most important to people and really answers the questions that are perhaps unknown. Obviously, hosting an Olympics is a, a very big unknown. And a journalist should be asking these questions. And I think that becomes the challenge is that you've got some that do and some that are not interested in that. Okay, I'll say two things to wrap up. One is hopeful and one is <laughs> less so. Um, something that uh, shocked me since the beginning of our campaign um, is as early as we possibly could, we read as many previous host city contracts as possible. We read the, you know, draft, uh, sorry, we read the draft 2024 contract for LA. We read the final LA 2028 contract. It has been really shocking at the 
number of uh, city leaders, including elected officials, including those who, who voted on whether to host the games, um, and as well as journalists have not read that contract or even pretended to. And it's very obvious, um, you know, if we're talking about like doing homework and stuff as a way of catching whether people understand. So like the one thing in particular that we'll usually call out is anytime a politician or journalist will ask, well, you know, well, can't the games like if you're concerned about housing, can't the games be used to to pay for that? Um, and on a more just, you know, one thing we can say, too, is to like look at Rio. And I know there were lots of promises in Rio and other cities that that would happen. And those promises don't work, specifically in the case of L.A.'s host city <laughs> contract like that is forbidden. That is it is mandated within the host city contract that any profits go towards sports. Um, so by contractual obligation, L.A. cannot use any of any profits that it will you know, almost inevitably not generate. But like in the event that it did, we contractually cannot use that towards housing or any other public good. Um, so that's a good way for us to test, like have people actually looked at the host city contract or are they just referring to press releases that the mayor has, has put out? Um, the thing I'll say that's more hopeful, something that we've seen um, given the LA Times like relative uh, strength compared to other media outlets is they recently put out a lawsuit against uh, City Hall and Garcetti's office. Um, something that we've been pushing since the beginning of the campaign has been the fact that this is a diversion of resources and not just in terms of public funding, but specifically in terms of our mayor's energy and time, you know, that we would consider that a civic resource and just looking at the amount of time that he spent hobnobbing and traveling mm -hmm. and having meetings with the IOC in Switzerland. Um, and that, that that's something that is a waste of civic energy and resources. Uh, and the LA Times recently uh, launched this lawsuit basically demanding that City Hall provide the costs for his out-of-town trips on taxpayer funds. Because something that we didn't realize actually until they launched this lawsuit is even though his travel for the Olympics was, you know, that's paid for from the bid committees, like privately funded war chest or whatever, um, the security detail, that's from the, that's the city's budget. So that when he goes to Switzerland for however many weeks and is like whining and dining with Thomas Bach and all of them, like the, you know, however many LAPD officers and security guards he has protecting him, that's coming out of our pocket. So not only is he not here dealing with the numerous crises that LA is facing, um, but that we're, we're paying for him to do that. Yikes. Yeah. Anyway, so but that's great. Like to see the LA Times take up that mantle yes. and be be leading that charge has been something that's been really hopeful. Um, okay, so just to wrap up, I want to you know something that as I mentioned before has been really inspiring about this process of getting to know people around the world and in various cities um, is being able to learn from each other. So I kind of want to end on talking to both of you and sort of what are the key pieces of advice that you would offer to folks uh, resisting um, in LA in particular, but like around the world? So I would say the first thing that anyone should do is just hop in immediately. The longer a city waits to fight against their bid, the bigger, the more entrenched the bid becomes and the bigger struggle that you're going to have. Um, so hop in immediately start the discourse, make sure people hear what you have to say, do the research. There are numerous books that written by activists who've done this work, journalists who've covered it and find people in the cities who've done this before. We get emails all the time from people being like, help, 
there's rumors that our city has an Olympics bid and we Googled and we found you. Please help us figure out what to do. Everyone who has been through this before, and I'm sure LA, you will be the next to be giving advice to people. Like once you've been through this, like you will give advice. It's like this weird, really messed up club that you join whether you want to or not. And you get through it and you help the next group of people. But there are so many people out there who understand how devastating this is to fight and how scary it is and what you're up against. So find people, look at what other cities have done, find the game plan that best fits with your city's culture and do not like sit back down and forget about it. Fight it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's it's the early reaction and it's the coordination with different people. And as a kind of interesting model, I mean, this is much more on the local local side than I think what you're really asking about. But but Villa Otajimo, again, that um, favela next to the Olympic Park that I mentioned before, even though the vast majority of residents there were ultimately evicted, 20 families remain in, in houses that the city became basically obliged to build for them um, after years of a very brutal fight with the city. And it's, you know, it, of course, there were many families that had to leave, but ultimately those 20 families represent a huge symbolic victory in terms of the fact that relatively poor, lower-income families were able to resist the pressure from real estate industries, from the city, from the IOC. And what I, one of my favorite, um, more positive stories that's come out of the Olympics in Rio is what they're currently doing now. So they are super active um, members of that of that small group have been going to different favelas across Rio and and that are currently facing eviction and sharing all their experience, all their strategies. They're, they're actually kind of calling this under the umbrella of the evictions museum, like preserving the preserving both the struggle, the negative, um, the kind of the horrible things they went through, but also the more positive, which is the, the way that they rallied around themselves and kind of unified as a community and also had people um, in solidarity working with them both in Rio, and then actually, they you know they they often mention um, London, Julian Chain from the Resistance mm-hmm. in London, and and they really felt support from different cities around the world. So I think taking that kind of model, which which Villa Otajimo and the Victions Museum is doing so well right now locally, um, and as Robin was saying, it's, it's and you were saying Anne in terms of it, it is already happening absolutely on the international scale, um, but just being proactive and reaching out to each other and um, documenting, of course, and and finding ways to to share and also just to support each other because it's it goes on for years. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be emotionally stressful. It can be really tiring. And I think we certainly felt in Rio re-energized anytime we we heard um, you know messages from people in other cities and other places. Hey, we're watching and and hey, we're we're behind you and and we're dealing with something similar. So I think. I think that that movement that we're building both on the local level and internationally is 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 going to make a difference ultimately. Yeah, like we were saying earlier, the IOC hates dissent of any kind. They don't know how to tolerate it. This is a bunch of literal royalty. They have no idea how to handle even someone just holding a sign in their face. It totally blows their mind. And the Olympics is built on a really so the Olympics originally was a World Fair sideshow. And, you know, the World's Fair traveled from city to city, and the Olympics was like a side thing you can do while you're at the World's Fair. World's Fair obviously didn't make it. The Olympics became its own thing, but it stayed in this model that is an 1800s model. It doesn't make sense for modern times. It makes no sense at all. What it has become is just this horrible monster, like, crawling all over the world, destroying everything. 
But what the IOC didn't anticipate when they decided to stick with this is that they've built an international movement against them in six continents, like, well, five continents, I guess. The point is, it's huge, and they don't necessarily know what to do with it. And a lot of times when they see dissent, they hit the road and go the other way. So sometimes that's half the battle right there. Right. That's something we were bringing up in a previous episode where in Boston, it really seemed like the the tipping point for you all was having the credible threat of a referendum. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Or just to have, have, even if it wasn't necessarily, I personally didn't think we could win a referendum because we were up against all the money in the world. But I think it was just the fact that people wanted a referendum. They're okay with the majority of the city not liking the Olympics as long as people don't know that. What they don't like is for the opposition to be in their face. Mm-hmm. And I will add, I think, you know, where we are right now at the IOC is 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 a time to be hopeful. I mean, in that period that Rio was preparing and in, in the same period that Boston was was putting up that massive fight, which did overlap. I mean, in terms of the way media talks about the IOC and the Olympics in general, even for all the continuing problems in those narratives, is so much more critical now than it was, say, about four years ago, five years ago. Um, And the IOC are absolutely feeling that. That's why they awarded LA the 2028 games at the same time as Paris the 2024 games. So I think think we're- Because they knew no one else was gonna bid for it. Right, exactly, exactly. So, you know, I think on the one hand, it feels like, oh, this overwhelming, impossible to face monster of a machine out there, but, I think actual progress is being made. And, and I think, you know, like Robin said, they're not used to dissent. They don't know how to deal with that. And they're also not used to the fact that while they've always been able to reach across national borders and link up with their networks, that we are now also able to do that too. Yeah, wonderful. I think that's a great note to end on, kind of where we started in terms of the um, the amazing transnational movement that sprung out of this um, and how grateful I am personally for it. Uh, yeah, thank you so much both for, for joining us and for taking the time on a Saturday to, um, to have this conversation. It's been really wonderful. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, this is great. Is there anywhere, I don't know if you heard Tim say that, but anything you want to plug or any sort of resources we can point people to from your end? If you go to our website, you can see we created scorecards for various local politicians who did or didn't support the Olympics. You can see a ton of the research that we did and we, you know, posted up on the site as we went, our Freedom of Information Act request. There's a lot of resources there. So if you go to our website, you can find out more information. Carrie-Anne, any uh, URLs? Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, RioOnWatch.org, so Rio O-N Watch, um, is, is still very active, even though it emerged originally with the goal to, to kind of Amplify Favela Voices through the Olympics. It, you know, it, it built its audience and, and a demand, so it's kept going since and is still very much reporting on those communities that still face eviction, the ones that have faced eviction, as well as a host of other issues um, around the city. And, and it's got a kind of new focus on solutions, which is exciting. You know, it's moving into a new phase in terms of let's, we need to, we, it's, always been, it's always been solutions oriented, but let's really dig into not just criticizing what's going on, but what kind of city we want to build and how to do it. To learn more and get involved, please visit nolympicsla.com and knock.la.